We've been looking at the book of Joel for a group of weeks. It's not a very long book. In fact, this is the first series I've ever preached through, through Joel. I've been pastoring for uh, a little over 21 years, and this is the first series I've ever had the privilege to do in Joel. It is one of those books that now and then people refer to, but you don't often hear lengthy teaching from the book. And I think sometimes that tends to be the case with the prophetic books in the Old Testament. We tend to skip those books from time to time because we're curious about what these things mean and what they have to do with our lives. But you quickly see when you look throughout the book of Joel, and I hope you've been seeing this as we've been studying it together, that the book displays the righteousness of God, the fact that he invites his people to repent, and the fact that he restores his people. And so the book started out with us looking at judgment that the the people of Judah were experiencing as a locust plague had come in and had ravaged the area. And the Lord indicated that this was a precursor, a picture of a time of judgment that this world is going to experience, a time that we refer to as the time of tribulation. And we see details about that specifically referenced in the book of Revelation. You have all sorts of details that are referenced there. But then you also see repentance on the part of the people of God. You also see restoration that God is bringing His people through. And as we look at this last section from the book of Joel today, we're about to look at a portion of Scripture that describes the fact that the Lord is going to return. And it shows us aspects of His return and aspects of His reign and when He restores all things, what that's going to look like. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Joel chapter 3. Again, we're in the last section of the book, Joel chapter 3, starting with verse 17, and I will be reading down to verse 21. Joel 3, starting with verse 17. This is what it says. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to just take time this morning to carve out uh, time in our schedule that we set aside to worship you. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word now, that you'd help us to understand more about what this portion of scripture is pointing our hearts toward. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our walk with you. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in who you are and that we would trust you completely in all contexts that you place us in. And Lord, we pray that we would have a hopeful perspective based on the things that you've revealed in your word. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to read it together now. And we thank you, Lord, for speaking it to our minds and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's healthy to be an introspective person. I think it's healthy when we think about our motivations, the things that that um, kind of go through our minds and through our hearts. It's wise to examine our longings. It's wise to examine our cravings. It's wise to examine our desires. 
And with that in mind, have you ever examined your personal desire or your personal craving for leadership and direction? Have you ever analyzed that about yourself? Have you ever thought about the fact that there is a part of your heart, that there's a part of your soul that longs for good leadership and good direction? Humanity has a powerful craving for justice and good leadership. And that's something that you could see when you study just human nature, when you study humanity throughout the centuries. We long to see fairness exhibited in things like our cultural institutions and other things, and we mourn when that fairness is absent. We crave oversight. We crave guidance. We crave good decisions of righteous leaders, and then we grumble when our leaders are either inept or immoral or dishonest. That's a pattern that humanity has always followed. But in every generation, no matter what generation you look to, mankind ends up experiencing disappointment in its leaders. In every generation. Do you ever wonder why that's the case? Because we elect leaders or leaders are appointed to govern us. And um, in big ways and in small ways, they at times let us down. We have this perfect ideal of what a leader should do and how a leader should function in his role, but human leaders never fully meet our idealistic expectations. But then you look at what Scripture reveals to us, and Scripture shows us that there is one leader, however, who will finally and fully satisfy our craving for righteous leadership. Scripture tells us that the day is coming when Jesus Christ will return to rule and to reign from Jerusalem. We see that mentioned throughout Scripture, all throughout the story of Scripture. It's pointing our hearts toward Christ. We're told that the day is going to come when Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's going to rule with perfect wisdom. He's going to rule with perfect righteousness. He's going to rule with perfect benevolence. He will satisfy this long-standing desire of the hearts of men for the perfect leader to guide them. That's what our hearts are actually craving. Our hearts, when we crave good leadership, ultimately we're craving Christ. That's a craving for Christ. And when you look at Joel chapter 3, verse 17, down to the end here, we see this very short prophetic book conclude with a glimpse of what this world is going to look like when Jesus returns to reign. So I want you to be thinking about a few things as we look at this passage of Scripture together today. How will Christ's reign impact us? So what does this portion of Scripture show us about this? Right? It shows us some things about how the reign of Christ will impact you and me and all those who believe in Him. And what will this world look like when He's worshipped? What will this world look like when He's recognized as Lord. These are the type of things I want our hearts and our minds thinking about today as we look at this portion of Scripture together. And one of the things that the Scripture shows us as we look at this today is that when that time comes, we will know Him. Look at what it tells us in verse 17 of chapter 3. I just read it, but I'll reread it again. It says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. Let me pause there for a moment. Have you ever heard it said that you should never aspire to meet the people that you really consider your heroes, people that you look up to? Do you ever hear that said? 
you ever have an opportunity where you, you met somebody that you just looked up to and then you discovered how human they were? <laughs> I've also had some good experiences with that, though. Um, I, I'm a big, avid fan of all kinds of music, and uh, there are a few musicians through the years that I really looked up to, not just because of the content of their music, but also because of what I believe to be the character of uh, their life, the character of their heart. And I actually had the opportunity uh, through the years to meet a couple of them, and I was pleasantly surprised to discover they lived up to the hype in my mind. They lived up to the hype. They ended up being genuinely nice. They ended up being genuinely kind. They weren't hiding behind a facade where they were trying to pretend to be something that they were not. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, I'm grateful for the picture of the future that our Lord grants us in this passage because He tells us that His people have a future of knowing Him on a deeper level. And that's what we have to look forward to. We will know Him. You know, right, and now, right now, we have the opportunity to know Him, but we'll know Him on an even deeper level. We'll visibly see Him with our eyes. The glories of eternity are described here with a, with a concept, and the concept here is one of relationship. That's something that our Lord desires that we have, a relationship with Him. We're told that we'll know the Lord. We're told that we'll recognize His leadership. We're told that we'll recognize His sanctifying power. These are all the implications of what's being referenced here in Joel 3.17. And we'll see the restoration of this world that Christ will facilitate. And we're also told here, and I think that this is an interesting phrase that's referenced in this verse, but we're told here that those who live as strangers or distant from the Lord, will not pass through the place of His reign. So if you're there, that means you're someone who knows Him. If you're there, that means you're someone who is not a stranger to the Lord. It says strangers will not pass through that area. Now at present, when you think about present-day Jerusalem, and this portion of Scripture is referencing Christ reigning from Jerusalem and governing this earth, When you think of Jerusalem at present, right now there are many people who pass through those streets who do not know the Lord. In fact, there are many people who presently pass through those streets who without fear blaspheme His name. But when He returns, He reveals to us in His Word here that that will not be the case. When He restores all things, there will not be a stranger, there will not be an unbeliever who passes through the place of His reign. I like what it tells us in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. It builds on that concept, and there it says this, "...but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written..." in the Lamb's book of life. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture reveals that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will pass through the place of Christ's reign. It's like what Joel is saying here in this portion of Scripture, that there will be no stranger there, right? Strangers shall never again pass through it. When the Lord returns to reign, we will know Him. Those who trust in Him will not live as strangers to to His presence or to His power. And by the way, since that's the case for our future, why live like strangers to Him now? Right? When you look at a portion of Scripture like this, what's it saying? It's saying that the future for those who have faith in Jesus Christ is that we will not live like strangers to Him. So since that's our future... Why live like we're strangers to Him now? Meaning we don't have to just wait till then 
to live as men and women who are familiar with our Lord. We don't have to li- wait till then to, to live like men and women who, who live with a deep and abiding awareness of the fact that Christ is present with us. We don't have to live like people who think of Him as distant. Or when we look at the Scriptures, we don't have to read the Scriptures as, as reading portions of Scriptures about someone who one day we hope to meet. We could read the Scriptures recognizing that we can know Him now. And as we know Him, we can grow to know Him deeper. We don't have to live like strangers to our Lord. He's present with us now. His power is available to us now. His presence is available to us now. But I love the fact that the future is painted as a time where we will know Him even deeper. That this relationship isn't static. That it continues to grow. That it continues to build. That it continues to mature. I often think about this through the lens of... of, uh, my marriage. My wife and I, we've been married now since 1998. So we're at 21 and a half years, and we dated for a little over three years prior to that. And it's interesting because I thought we knew each other real well when we got married. And you know what happens after 21 and a half years of marriage? You realize you were just scratching the surface. And then over time, what you discover is that relationship matures, and it matures, and it grows, and it grows. And then I look at a portion of Scripture like this, where it tells us that in the kingdom of God, there will be no strangers to our Lord. This relationship grows, and it grows. Your walk with the Lord grows. You can know Him better today than you knew Him yesterday, as we walk by faith in Him in all contexts. But the picture that's painted of the future is one of relationship. Not God off at a distance, but God who knows us and whom we know. Something else that this portion of Scripture from Joel tells us is this book is now winding down and concluding and showing us all these hopeful things that the Lord has in store for us. It tells us that in that day, we will be sustained by Him. And it gives us a vivid picture of how this plays out. Look at verse 18 of Joel chapter 3. It says, And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now, we just spent a moment thinking about the longings and the desires and uh, just the cravings of the human heart. So let's do a little bit more uh, analysis of humanity for just a second. Mankind was not designed to be self-sufficient. Do you believe that statement is true, or is there a part of you that that kind of bristles about that idea? Let me say it again. Mankind is not not designed to be self-sufficient, fully self-sufficient. I have to tell you, um, for a long time I bristled against that notion. Uh, Because my personality type is such that I try as best as I can to be self-sufficient. I'm seeing my daughter smiling about that. I'm seeing my wife smile about that quiet. (laughs) You will say nothing. But they know that to be true. They know, you know, that just by personality, that's a concept that didn't come... Understanding this idea of being sustained is not something that naturally I have an affinity for. I try my best not to inconvenience other people. I try my best not to ask for help. I try my best to do things without uh, imposing myself on other people. And then what the Lord's been teaching me over time is, 
you were not designed to be self-sufficient. That's not how you were designed. It is not healthy for you to even try to be self-sufficient. We're dependent on our Lord. And at present, we're also dependent on one another. And in fact, if you want to grow, I don't know if that's something that you've ever prayed. Lord, uh, help me grow in my walk with you. If, you're, if you're, you're praying that your faith in Christ would grow and you're still trying to be self-sufficient in your walk with Christ, your faith doesn't grow when you're trying to be self-sufficient. You need Him and you need other people, other believers, uh, to be part of your life and to be investing in you. You weren't designed to grow as a soloist. Children don't mature into adults without adults helping to get them there. When we reach adulthood, what do we do as adults? Think about this. We adopt jobs that meet needs to satisfy specialized needs that other people have. So you do this thing, I do this thing, and the synergy, the combination of our efforts helps things to work well. Did anyone here pave the roads that you drove to get here today? No, none of us? No one here paved those roads. Okay, so somebody else paved them. Anyone else anyone build their car? How many of you raised the food or grew the food that you ate today? How many of us installed the furnace that is heating us right now? Anyone build that chair? Any one of you sew your own clothing? Maybe someone for that. No? No one sewed their own clothes? Oh, machines did that for you, that were being guided by other people. Okay. You know, I mean, even when you think about the utensils that you eat with, did you forge those? Do you have like a stainless steel forge in your house somewhere? Were you forge? You don't even make your own utensils. So without somebody making those utensils, would we just be eating with our hands? Like just every, some of us do that anyway. All right, that's fine. That's fine. You do that anyway. In some contexts, that's very culturally appropriate, in fact. But the point being, we are not self-sufficient like we would like to think we are. And in our later years, we often become just as dependent on other people as we were in our earliest years. I've actually been watching this take place in my family as uh, over the past group of years, my stepmother has developed pretty severe dementia. And it started off as forgetfulness, and then it segued from that into some depression. And then from depression, it just kind of became confusion. And we thought, boy, a lot of times when she's saying things, we're not sure what she's talking about. And then eventually it just became very clear that her dementia was getting worse and worse and worse. And you know what my dad does every day? He takes care of every one of her needs. You know, she's in a chair. She doesn't say things that make sense anymore. She can't feed herself. She can't take care of her hygienic needs. These are things that she is completely dependent on my father to do. She doesn't. We miss the days when verbally she would make sense. But you know what else is interesting about it? And this is something that fascinates me, because I look at that and I say, okay, I, I hope that doesn't happen to me. And you're probably thinking, if you're honest with yourself, I hope that never happens to me, right? If we're honest, like I, I doubt any of us want dementia. Can I tell you that she is more content and happy than I've ever seen her in my entire life, as strange as that may sound? I've never seen her this happy. You know, she's, she's uh, in her 80s. She sits in a chair being cared for by others. She has like a baby doll there that at times she'll try and talk to. And, and um, she's fed by others, cared for by others in all sorts of ways. 
And you look, she's, all her needs are being met by others, and she's being sustained by the efforts of others, just like she was an infant all over again. Thoroughly content. Never have I seen her happier than I see her right now. And yet, what do we do? We bristle at this idea of not being self-sufficient, and yet we were not designed to be self-sufficient. We were designed to meet one another's needs and be a blessing to one another, help each other grow in our faith as a reflection of the fact that Christ is actively sustaining us right here and now. And I'm grateful that we worship a God who sustains us. Scripture tells us, and and displays it this way in multiple ways, that one of the ministries Christ is actively doing is sustaining all things. So He sustains creation. He sustains His people, He strengthens us, He supports us, He feeds our body, our mind, our spirit, and He assures us when you look at a portion of Scripture like we just read from Joel chapter 3 that He will sustain us forever. That's the picture that's being painted for us of the future for those of us who are in Christ. Here the picture we're, we're being told about speaks about the mountains dripping with sweet wine, the hills flowing with milk, the stream beds will flow with water, it says, and a fountain will come forth from the house of the Lord. It's a very colorful picture that illustrates the fact that our Lord not only sustains us now, but He will sustain His people for all eternity. Now, I'm grateful when I look at a portion of Scripture like this that it describes our future hope, but again, it's also giving us a glimpse of our present-day reality. And the better I've come to know Christ, the more I've come to realize and appreciate the ways that He's actively sustaining me. And it's interesting because the Lord has not hesitated to ask me throughout the course of my life to take steps of faith or to do difficult things, but I've also noticed that in the midst of each challenging experience that He's ever asked me to kind of just volunteer for, just kind of step forward and do, no matter what challenging thing He's ever asked me to do, I've also been able to feel His power sustaining me, I could also feel the ways in which He's granting me His guidance and teaching me that I can trust in Him. Is that your testimony too? Now, can you tell that as the Lord's developing your relationship with Him, that He's also building a confidence in you, that you can trust in Him, that He will sustain you, that He will provide for whatever you need in the midst of whatever He calls you to do? Now, I'm grateful that I don't have to wait till the end of my earthly life to acknowledge that that that's something that he's actually convinced my heart of now. And so when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we can be encouraged about the fact that by nature the Lord desires to sustain those he loves. It's an expression of his love. It's an expression of his compassion. And we get to experience that in the future, but we also get to experience that now. If, If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have the privilege right now of being able to testify to the fact that you are being daily, momentarily, in every context, sustained by your Lord who loves you. Now look at something else. Scripture kind of changes focus a little bit here in verse 19, and it shows us something else that the Lord's going to do. He's going to right some wrongs as we get to to this time of His reign. In verse 19, it shows us that those who oppressed His people will not prosper. There it says this, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom, a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. 
Now, again, history is filled with examples of, of people oppressing or taking, advantages of, or taking advantage of others. Um, powerful nations have oppressed weaker nations. Nations that forged alliances with others have had those alliances broken for selfish reasons. And individual relationships as well. When we look at just individual relationships with people that have known each other on a personal level, they've often exhibited some of those traits as well, traits of, of uh, dismissal or betrayal or things of that nature. In fact, not long ago, I received a phone call from a ministry leader that I've developed a friendship with over the years, particularly over the past five or six years, I would say. But he was upset about something. He was upset about the ways in which um, he and some other leaders had recently been betrayed by some, that, some others that they thought were, were going to help them. So these folks had agreed to help them in a particular way and then just backed out and uh, did the opposite. And it ended up hurting him and his ministry and, and hurt the ministry of, of several others that he was partnering with in ministry. And he was upset, and I think he just wanted to talk about it and, and maybe even vent a little and, and, uh, and pray together. And one of the comments that I made to him in the midst of that conversation was this. I said to him, look, in the short term, they may feel like they pulled one over on you or secured some kind of twisted victory. But I said to him, keep in mind that they did this to you at the expense of their integrity. They did this to you at the expense of their integrity. So in the long run, they've lost your trust. They've lost your respect. And that's not a victory at all. So in the moment, they may feel like they've secured some sort of victory against you, but they've lost your trust, they've lost your respect, and they compromise their integrity to do it. That is not a long-term victory. And I bring that up because here we're told about Egypt and Edom. And Egypt and Edom were places and people groups that, that were known for oppressing the people of God, setting themselves against the people that God was working through. And by the way, this happens to believers in all generations, but those short-sighted victories have negative long-term implications. It's just like we see on a, on a personal level now, you know, negative short-term victories have negative long-term implications. Well, the same is true for groups like Egypt and Edom. And so Joel here prophesies that nations like Egypt and Edom, two groups of people that, again, routinely harassed and hurt the people of Israel and Judah, that they would become desolate. The innocent blood that they shed in their land was blood that was going to call out for righteousness. And that plea was going to be heard and addressed by the Lord. And Joel is bringing that up here in this portion of Scripture. Now, I don't rejoice in anyone's demise. I'd much rather see the fruit of repentance and the fruit of restoration in a person's life than somebody persist in wrongdoing. But it does comfort my heart at present when I look at a portion of Scripture like this to know that in the end, injustice will not stand. That's something that the Lord makes abundantly clear. So think about whatever form of injustice you have witnessed in this world, whether in your personal life, or whether it's something that you've witnessed in, in you know, just historical context or whatever it may be, injustice ultimately will not stand. The truth will always be brought to light. And those who, who deceive or malign or oppress God's people will not prosper. It doesn't work out well for their future if that's what they decide to do. In fact, their temporary prosperity will ultimately be taken away from them for good. And that's what we see here in this portion of Scripture is Egypt and Edom are, are 
you know, really going to experience these things, but also it's symbolic for what people throughout history are going to recognize, that those temporary victories where they worked against God, where they worked against God's people, have negative long-term implications. But now this scripture comes to a conclusion, and this book comes to a conclusion. And it tells us this, as we look at verses 20 and 21, as we finish up our study of this book, that ultimately, God will dwell among us. There it says this, But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. That's how this book ends. The Lord dwells in Zion. Uh, Eleven years ago, we bought our house, and our neighborhood, I think if the, if the number's right, there's 99 homes in our neighborhood, and it comes, it's like a, a U, and it almost operates like it's, in some ways, its own world, wouldn't you say? It's like, it kind of, it just, the way the road works, it doesn't really connect to the neighborhoods that are right next to us, because the road comes in like a U, so it's kind of its own thing, and so when a neighborhood is built like that, it tends to develop uh, a little bit of its own flavor, a little bit of its own character. And we didn't realize these things when we bought our home, but it didn't take us too long to realize after living there that we really like living there. And we really like just some of the aspects of, of um, you know, getting to know our neighbors a little bit better and the, the people that our children have been, been able to become friends with in our neighborhood and the fact that the sidewalks connect our homes to their homes in the neighborhood. And I've often thought, boy, how neat would it be? And I, well, there's a house up for sale on our street right down the road. And I often think when a house goes up for sale in our street or on our street or in our neighborhood, how neat it would be for the day to come when our kids maybe you know, move to that neighborhood too. I'm like, hey, well, let's be neighbors, you know? Someday when you guys are, are looking at houses, look here, you know, look here. Let's, let's be, I'm sure, I, don't ask them, I don't know what their opinion is on it, all right? That's irrelevant to me. Um, but I just, I, I've, I've joked about it. I'm like, hey, you know, you could buy that house and, and maybe you could buy that. And we could be, if you buy this one, our yards will connect. And wouldn't that be great, right? And uh, I've even mentioned it to some of our extended family members. I'm like, hey, you know, house is going up for sale right, right by us. You want to be neighbors? We, we don't even have to visit on holidays. We could just see each other all the time. You know, what do you think? It seems like it'd be fun, you know, just to, to live near the people you love most. Doesn't that seem like an enjoyable thing, right? Some of you are like, mostly, mostly, near-ish. Yeah, same neighborhood, too far, right? I don't know. But I brought it up a few times. I think it's interesting. But I like how this book ends. I like how the book of Joel ends. It ends with a reminder that the Lord will live with His people. That's how the book ends. With a reminder that the Lord delights to live with His people. He will dwell among those He loves. How about this for a thought? Our yard will connect with His yard. Isn't that a crazy thought? That's like the concept that's being spoken of here, that in the future, you know, the Lord delights to dwell among His people. I think it's fascinating. It's a fitting, it's a hopeful way for this book to conclude. In fact, when you look at the second to last chapter of the Bible, when you look at the second to last chapter of the book of Revelation, we're shown the same thing. We're given a reminder just in another way. And by the way, can't you see all the connections between Joel and the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation? But look what it tells us in Revelation 21.3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the picture of the future that's being painted for us. The fact that God chooses to dwell among us. And when you look at stuff like that, do you ever wonder, why does he even care? Why does he care so much about people? It seems like all we've done is cause him trouble, right? It seems like all we've done is rebel against him. Yet he created us in his image, and he delights to do his work in us, and he loves those that he's called unto himself. And the Scripture tells us that he delights to dwell among us. And as we dwell with the Lord, we'll do so as men and women who have been cleansed of our unrighteousness. Yes, we've rebelled against him in many ways. You have, I have. Every one of us have. But we'll be cleansed of of our unrighteousness. Joel makes a comment here where he tells us that the Lord will avenge the blood of his people. What does that mean? Well, the word the ESV here translates as avenge is also sometimes translated as cleanse. So people debate, how do we how do we translate this word? Is it avenge? Is it cleanse? The idea is that we'll be cleansed and prepared for an eternity in the presence of our Lord. And that's consistent with what it tells us elsewhere in Scripture. Look at what it tells us in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. It says, on that day there, will be a, there shall be a fountain. So we saw this earlier, right? Here in Joel, but Zechariah speaks of it too. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So we'll live in the Lord's presence as men and women who have been cleansed of our sin and prepared to live in the presence of the Lord. So let me say this as we finish up here this morning. In your heart right now, so let's not talk about the future for just a moment, just in your heart right now, where do you believe God to be? Where is God? You know, if someone asks you, point, where is He? Where is God? I think it's an interesting question for us to ask ourselves because our answer reveals a lot about our relationship with Him. Because if we believe that God is distant from us, that indicates something about how we relate to Him at present. Or how about this? If you feel like you're too filthy or too filled with shame or too filled with regret or too filled with mistakes to come near to a holy God, and so you kind of maybe don't even think of Him as distant from you, but yourself as distant from Him. Sometimes these are things that we wrestle with. Do you feel like God is distant? Well, one of the things that the Scripture is trying to kind of pound into our minds and pound into our hearts is that among the things that the Lord is using His Word to reveal to us is that, that He He cleanses us. He assures us that cleansing from our sin can be found through faith in Jesus Christ who bore our sin on the cross, and as we're cleansed, we're invited to live near to Him. So He doesn't ask you to cleanse yourself. He doesn't ask me to cleanse myself. He offers us the gift of that cleansing through Jesus Christ and then the blessing of living in close proximity to Him. Let me say this as we end here. There is no joy found in living distant from Jesus. There's no joy found in living distant from Christ. There is no joy found in running from Him. There is no joy found in rebelling against Him. True joy 
both in the immediate present and in the future, is found in the presence of Jesus Christ. And Christ invites us now to live in His presence, to live near Him, and to experience that joy. Is that joy something that your heart desires to know? If that's something that your heart craves, if that's something that you desire to experience that lasting joy, Christ invites you to stop living distant from Him and to begin living near to Him by grace through faith in Him. That's what He invites us to do. And the picture of the future that He holds out for us in a portion of Scripture like this is one where He delights to live near His people. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. And thank You for the pictures that You paint for us when we look at a prophetic book like the book of Joel. Lord, we recognize that that this book being written maybe about 2,800 years ago, something like that, paints a picture of things that as of yet haven't fully come to pass, but we've seen a variety of things come to pass that you've prophesied in the Old Testament, and it gives us confidence that the remaining prophecies yet to be fulfilled will come to pass. And so, Lord, as we look at a portion of Scripture like this that describes the time of your reign, it speaks of your return and the restoration that you bring to your people and to this earth, Lord, we're grateful to be able to see these things because right now there are things that challenge how we feel about day-to-day life. Lord, I can confess that as I look around this earth, I see the effects of sin. I see certain things in our culture that I'm extremely uncomfortable with because I know that there are things that really are the fruit of disbelief. And Lord, I pray that by Your grace, You'd help us to to remain hopeful in the midst of every context that You place us in. Context that we live in right now, the context that we'll be in in coming days. Lord, there is a hopeful future in store for all those who know You. There's a hopeful and joyful future in store for those who trust in You through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. So thank You for giving us a glimpse of these things as we look at Your Word together today. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of our day-to-day experience right now, that we would live as men and women who are close to You, who experience joy that's not dependent on our circumstances, who rejoice in Your presence and who rejoice in Your power. And we can tell right now that You're sustaining us in the midst of everything that we endure and everything that we go through. Thank You for Your sustaining power. Thank You for Your love. And we pray that we would approach today and this week and ultimately our whole lives through that lens, that that's how we would see things, knowing that this is what you've revealed in your word. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.